it's been in the 60s here in the Portland, Oregon area. And when the weather gets like this and I actually have the car, one of my absolute favorite things to do whenever I'm going anywhere, not that I'm going very many places considering the state of the world, but one of my favorite things to do when I have to drive somewhere is to roll down the windows, hook my phone up to the car radio, blast the volume, and go down the interstate playing surf music. There's just something about the speed, the cool air flapping around, flapping, does air flap? Well, you know what I mean. The air just pouring into the car and just the music playing. It's just, you know, it's a magical thing for me. And you know what's even cooler is when I get to do it at night, but I haven't been out in the evening a lot lately. Anyway, while I was doing that the other day, I decided to play some music that I hadn't listened to in a while. I listened to a lot of instrumental surf music because of Monster Kid Radio and, you know, for fun. So I decided to dial up the Bandcamp page for the French surf band Moms I'd Like to Surf. And I ended up listening to their album Beach Control to Major Knob. And they have a song called Hipster on a Beach. And that's what you're listening to right now. My name is Derek M. Cook, and I am the writer, host, producer of Monster Kid Radio, the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes the not-so-classic genre cinema of yesteryear. Welcome to the show. Big thanks to Moms I'd Like to Surf for letting us play their music here on the show. I haven't played them here on the show in a very long time. I will make sure there's a link in the show notes so you can get over to momsidliketosurf.bandcamp.com, and you can check out their entire catalog. I'll play the song its entirety at the end of the show as well. So this week here on the show, we're doing a movie discussion, a review, a conversation. Scott Morris is here and we're talking about the 27th day. The 27th day is a science fiction film and it's not a typical 1950s sci-fi film. If you haven't seen the movie before, I highly recommend that you check it out. We are going to spoil a lot of it, as we typically do these days. You will get the spoiler warning at the beginning of the conversation. If you haven't seen the movie, again, go see it. And then come back here to listen to Scott and I and break it down, talk about what we liked, what we didn't like, some of the surprises that we found along the way. It's a fun film. Also, we have Kenny's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. And he, you know, surprised me this time around by talking about a movie that I would have never considered talking about here on the show, but I'm really excited for that segment as well. Mark Matsky is taking the week off. The Beta Capsule Review will be back next week. Mark just needed to take a week off, so that'll be coming back next time around. So no Beta Capsule Review this week, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't have some Ultraman in your life. So hop on over to the Subaraya YouTube page and just check out Ultraman. They've got so much up there for you to watch for free right now. And yeah, I know it's in Japanese, but you turn on the captioning and the auto-translate and you get a pretty good approximation of what they're saying in English. So go watch some of that. You know what? I'll even make sure there's a link in the show notes. So that's what we've got coming up this week here on the show. Why don't we go ahead and roll into Kenny and then the conversation with Scott. Um, now...
It seemed incredible that the microscopic material that Spacemaster X-7 brought back to Earth from outer space could grow into this crawling, pulsating, thinking mass of protoplasmic evil. As the specimens grow, their need for nourishment also increases because of its color. I call this organism blood rust. Joe. Blood rust. Palmer. It lived on flesh and destroyed everything that stood in its way. There was only one way to stem this red tide of destruction, with total warfare. One human contact, one unwitting person who spreads this thing, can carry contagion all over the country, all over the world. The entire forces of a nation mobilized to hunt down any possible carrier of this dread contamination. Among them, this beautiful blonde who fled in panic because of the shameful secret she had to hide from the world. The woman they have to find, the taint they have to destroy with fire and fury to stop the creeping terror that spread by land and through the air. We can't get our landing gear down. Rod rust must have damaged the hydraulic system. We'll have to make it a belly landing. North-south runway. We'll lay a fomite path for you. I'd like to take a second to thank our advertisers, like Stuffed with Character and Stephen D. Sullivan. If you'd like to advertise on this stream or even the Monster Kid Radio podcast, please reach out to me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. I'll send you an ad sheet and we can discuss rates. Thanks again. From a world beyond our own, come the forces of nature unleashed. Daikaiju Attack, the serialized giant monster story, presented free every week on DaikaijuAttack.com and SDSullivan.com. Become a member of the Daikaiju Attack group on Facebook. Join the action today. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. Today's film, 27th Day, was not covered in FM. So in honor of our Disney superfan guest, Scott Morris, we're going to look at yet another Disney film covered in the early 80s, Dragon Slayer. In issue 176 from August of 1981, we have a preview article. It was six pages long and had 14 photos. It included a brief synopsis and this interesting information. The last time Walt Disney Productions gave us a Sorcerer's Apprentice was in 1940, when Mickey Mouse unsuccessfully tackled an army of rampaging brooms. Now, in conjunction with Paramount Pictures, their second co-production since last year's Popeye, Walt Disney Productions presents Dragon Slayer. The man who plays the pivotal role of Ulrich in Dragon Slayer is one of the most respected actors in the world, Sir Ralph Richardson, who starred in the long-ago H.G. Wells sci-fi classic, Things to Come, has been acting professionally for 60 years, though this is the first time he has starred in a monster movie. The 80-year-old actor was, fittingly, dubbed a knight in 1974. Young Peter McNichol appears as Galen, who must battle the dragon. It is no help to Galen that Peter's real father is a member of the clergy, 
or that before he became an actor, Peter wanted to be a paleontologist and study dinosaurs. This film gave him the chance to study a giant lizard close up. Actually, Peter admits that facing the dragon was not the most difficult part of his role in the picture. As an apprentice sorcerer, he had to master sleight of hand tricks to perform in the film. I hated magic when I was a kid, he admits, because it's so frustrating not being able to follow something that is obviously happening in front of your eyes. Now that he knows how it all works, thanks to tutoring by magician Harold Taylor, he finds it a most fascinating art. Clash of the Titans? It's unusual that two big-budget $14 million films will appear in the same month with virtually the same plot. That's what happened here. Clash of the Titans, Dragon Slayer. A princess in distress, a young hero with magic weapons, a marauding monster, an ancient setting, and one thing more, stop-motion monsters. Whereas the incredible creatures in Clash of the Titans were animated by the brilliant Ray Harryhausen, their demonic dragon was brought to frame at a time life by up-and-coming stop-motion stars Phil Tippett and Dave Bonnet, who worked for George Lucas Industrial Light and Magic. The miniature model was melded in the film with footage of a life-size mock-up of the dragon, built the same size as the real monster, 40 feet long with a 90-foot wingspan. Ironically, Dragon Slayer was shot at the Pinewood Studios in London, at the same time Clash of the Titans was filming there as well. In fact, Harryhausen paid a visit to the Disney Paramount set on one of the days when the giant dragon model was being used. Thus, he was present to witness the technicians turn on the gas for the beast to spit flame and saw the intense heat incinerate the metal and plastic head. But the special effects setback was overcome and Dragon Slayer has emerged quite a remarkable film. The miniature baby dragons were all Yoda-like puppets operated by the talented people of the Lucas Studio with help from the Disney special effects team. Dragon out dragons. So, in the tradition of such classic dragon films as Siegfried, The Magic Sword, The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, The Sword and the Dragon, and The Wonderful World of the Brothers Grimm, we now have Dragon Slayer, a modern-day ancient classic. Almost a year later, Dragon Slayer shared the cover with Conan the Barbarian on FM 184 from June of 1982. Inside, we find an article called Dragon Slayer and Appreciation by Tim Moriarty. It included six pages and 11 photos. Dragon Slayer did not do well at the box office, as it was pitted against Raiders of the Lost Ark and Superman 2. So Disney was going to re-release it. Mr. Moriarty presents a critique to encourage fans to see the movie. It also included notes on the production. Here's a section about the newest state-of-the-art stop-motion animation. The stop-motion effects were realized at Industrial Light and Magic in California. Chris Wallace designed, sculpted, and operated a dragon for the intricate close-up work. But it was Phil Tippett, who previously brought a Tauntaun to life in The Empire Strikes Back, that took motion control techniques in filming stop-motion one step further for Dragon Slayer. In doing so, Tippett and the crew of ILM created among the most stunning stop-motion effects ever filmed. We had to carry the method further for the dragon, says Tippett. We felt that current audiences just wouldn't buy a dragon with the jerky look of old stop-motion. We wanted to try to do something that had never really been seen before, and that looked more alive than anything previously. Motion control is a system by which computers control motors that make movement in models. Tippett refined this process by placing the model of the dragon, whose armature was designed for at least 16 different movements of body, 
on a pedestal whose movement was, in turn, directed by 16 separate motors and axes. The dragon could then move 16 separate body parts simultaneously. Once programmed, the sequences were filmed in the conventional one-frame-at-a-time stop-motion process, but with one crucial difference. Tippett rolled the film while the dragon was in movement, rather than static. This movement caused a blurred image, just as any live-action shot has. The result was a dragon that walked with almost surreal fluidity. Ken Ralston of ILM used the same technique for the flying sequences except that, as in the spaceships in Star Wars and other space epics, the dragon model was stationary. It is the camera which does the panning, tilting, and zooming to simulate flight. I loved Dragon Slayer when it came out. I saw it in my local box theater in Pittsburgh, but also was in LA on a trip and went to see a 70mm print in the Disney Theater on Hollywood Boulevard. That was a treat. That's all for this week's look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next week. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. Kenny, my man. You know, I haven't been coming in and commenting on the segments lately here on the show, partly because, you know, I wait till the last minute to put the show together, which I really need to stop doing. But, you know, I love Dragon Slayer. When I was a kid, this was a movie that I watched over and over and over again. I loved the heck out of it. When I was younger, I loved it because it had a cool dragon and I liked the story. When I got a little bit older, I started having some funny feelings about the lead female in that, but you know, I'm just you know, anyway, it's a great film. I really enjoy it. I listen to the music quite a bit as well, uh, especially these days as I'm getting back into fantasy fiction and that sort of thing. I am going to be that guy, though. It's Chris Wayless, not Chris Wallace. And I only bring that up because he's a friend and there's a chance he's going to be on a future episode of Monster Kid Radio at some point. Um, yeah. Anyway, thank you for sending that segment in, man. Dragon Slayer is so cool. And I, I haven't watched it in a really, really long time. Is it on Disney Plus, I wonder, since it's technically a Disney film? Not that I have access to Disney Plus. So if any of you have, you know, Disney Plus password and just you know, I'm just saying. Anyway, uh, <laughs> Dragon Slayer is awesome. Kenny, thank you for reminding me of a movie from my childhood that I really loved. I have been witness to something. Something of consequence to you. To me? There's a great task needing to be done. No doubt you've heard of our trouble at home. A dragon. Fire and stench. It is evil. Pure and simple. You want me to do battle with that? Behold, for I am chosen, I shall die that many may live. Twice each year, the king selects a new victim. Chosen by lot. Girls. Virgins. Your king made a pact with a monster. But your children were dying! Only a few. Does that sound cruel? Blacksmith, have you ever forged a weapon? An edge like no other on this earth. Dragon Slayer. Coming. 
on Paramount Pictures. Spider Island. Eight beautiful girls and one lone man struggling for survival. With death, sudden, violent, and horrible lurking in the shadows. Horrors of Spider Island. Out of the night came a fate worse than death. A man's mind twisted, his brain poisoned, with an uncontrollable lust to kill. Horrors of Spider Island. A tale of terror that will leave you limp. So hideous and shocking, you won't believe your eyes. His hunger for victims was never satisfied. Prepare to be frightened out of your wits by the horrors of Spider Island. This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula. And I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited. And occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned. And don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. Who? Space alien. What? End of Earth. When? 27th day. I'm reading that from the press kit uh, that was issued to movie theaters and drive-in movie theaters for the release of the 27th day, which is the movie we're talking about this week with... Uh, you know, this guy that you might know, Scott Morris. How you doing, man? I'm doing good, and I'd like to welcome everyone to the 27-day-long podcast. This podcast will stretch over the next 27 days until the end of the Earth. I did not sign up for that. Um, <laughs> we're going to have to get a lot more uh, Patreon supporters to be able to afford the <laughs> bandwidth for that guy. Wow. <laughs> uh, you know, we always, we, we've done the plan nine by nine. We're talking about doing five minutes of Manos. This is just the opposite of that, right? We just stretch right. this out. We're going to stretch know, this out for 27 days. <laughs> one 27-day-long podcast. Does anybody <laughs> even really – is that – is that – man, I don't even want to know. <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine the, the computing power and, and how long it would take to render that and the space it would need. and Yeah, oof. with your – 
your podcast uh, storage, whoever you're with, be uh, happy with a file that big. Well, that's why I'm saying we need a lot more support to afford the bigger space. But I'm thinking about the hard drive space here just by True. itself. 27 day long. Wow. We're, well, we're not doing that, but we are talking about the 27th day, which uh, is something that I think, didn't we show this on the stream? Is it in the public domain? I don't remember if we showed it in the stream or not. I didn't think it was in the public domain, so I don't think it's been on the stream. I know I've played the trailer quite a few times. You have so. played the trailer many times. In fact, you played it, I think, in the most recent stream. That might be why I keep thinking. About it. Yeah. So, yeah, it's not been shown in the Monster Kid Movie Club, but we have shown the trailer quite a bit, which, you know, what the heck? We're going to listen to the audio for the trailer right now. In just a few moments, these five, American newspaper man, English bathing beauty, German scientist, Russian soldier, Chinese peasant girl, will be given the power to destroy every human being on Earth. What will they do? What will their governments force them to do? What would you do? Each of the capsules has a diameter of lethal radiation, which is exactly 3,000 miles. There is then, in the combined capsules, more than enough power to wipe out all human life on your planet. People of Earth, I am an alien from outer space. Don't say anything. I thought you'd never make it. How long are we going to stay here just hiding like hunted animals? You don't think I like hiding, do you? It's been here ten days. We've managed to disagree on every one of them. Actually, we've had all the disadvantages of marriage without any of the advantages. Jonathan? But it's true. It's time I went to bed. Demand is hereby made for the immediate withdrawal of all American forces and civilians on land, sea, and air to within the limits of continental United States on pain of total war. Every human being alive will die unless science solves the riddle of the destruction capsules from outer space before the 27th day. That's me, Klaus. Where are they? I've launched them. Soon the world will be ours. Yeah, uh, the 27th day. It's a science fiction movie. No real traditional monsters to speak of. Came out, what, 1957? Yes, 1957. Uh, oh, and I love this tagline from one of the posters. Mightiest shocker the screen ever had the cuts to make. What does that even mean? <laughs> the know. guts, not cuts, guts. guts. <laughs> the guts to make. That makes more sense. <laughs> yes. I was reading yeah, that from uh, uh, Zombo's Closet, which is a website that has a lot of press kits and such on it. So Yeah, it's definitely not what you normally think about an alien invasion movie. I mean, there is one alien, but he's not a really a monster or scary but it's more of a cerebral talky uh, type movie cerebral talky yes <laughs> i like it <laughs> uh, let's see it was yeah 1957 for sure i just confirmed that uh, directed by william asher who is a name that i kind of sort of know i know him more from television yeah 
he he's the man that came up with uh, Bewitched. Yeah. Because he was married to Elizabeth Montgomery for a while. Uh, he is credited as being the inventor, if not one. Well, some places say he's actually the inventor of the sitcom. I, I don't know if that's accurate, but he's very involved in television. Very involved in television. Uh, won an Emmy for an episode of Bewitched. And in a roundabout way, I can thank him for WandaVision. <laughs> oh, <With> Bewitched. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he was also behind a lot of the uh, Beach Party movies, which... Yes, he was. You know what? I love those movies. I do too. I love them so much. They're totally outside of my normal... I don't know. If somebody were to meet me, if somebody were to listen to me talk about the movies that I love... Hearing about universal horror films, hammer horror films, things like Monos or Plan 9, the Luchador movies, the Kaiju movies, I don't think any of that would come as a surprise. If I were to say, I really like Frankie Avalon and Annette Flutello in the <laughs> bikini movies, I don't know if, if I would get the same, oh yeah, sure, of course you do, because it's really nothing like anything else. <laughs> I, I'm also a big fan of those, and, but for me, it makes a little more sense because you've got Annette and her Disney connections exactly. that, that I have. So I've always been a big fan of those movies. You know, I, I discovered them a few years ago. They were showing on TCM and I set the DVR to just record them all. Mm -hmm. And I watched them all like over the course of like four or five you know, days. Once they, I got them all on the DVR and yeah, the plots are very similar and just, I love them. I, there's just something fun about them. I don't know if it's the surf thing. I don't know if it's the occasional cameo from somebody like Vincent Price. I, I don't know if it's the motorcycle gang that hangs out there. I just, I love them. We should cover them on, well, I don't know what podcast we could cover. Them <laughs> right. <laughs> They don't really fit in MKR too much. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's the one with the Vincent Price cameo, and isn't Peter Lorre in one of them? I believe he is. So we might be able to stretch it. <laughs> I mean, there's the girl in the invisible bikini, but that's not really part of the series. That's kind of a side. From, not that it's a series to begin with, but, you know, it's kind of, yeah. What are we talking about? <laughs> bikini films. You can tell where Derek's mind's at these days. Uh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're talking about director William Asher. Who, uh -huh. <laughs> who directed the 27th day. <laughs> you know, he also directed Fireball 500, which is a, you know what? I like that movie too, but uh, yeah, 27th day, William Asher directed that movie. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> what studio put this out? Oh, it was put out by Columbia Pictures. So, yes. I mean, no, it is not in the public domain. Uh, if it's a Columbia Pictures production or at least release it feels a lot like it feels a lot more science fiction than a lot of the science fiction offerings that were coming out at the time in its truest sense it's doing what science fiction can do so well and that's asking the big heavy questions but by wrapping them maybe even disguising them in the trappings of the genre you know it's got a very twilight zone kind of feel that that sort of approach, you know, very Serling esque. I feel like. Oh, I wholeheartedly agree that it's a very Twilight Zone. I also get a kind of a Star Trek vibe in parts of it as well. A little Star Trekky, a uh, little Outer Limits like. Yeah, very, very. I don't want to say parable, but very like we've, we're trying to get a message across. But no, kids, really, it's science fiction. Come watch it, you know. <laughs> and, and it succeeds on both levels for the most part. 
True. True. Uh, apparently it's based on a novel, which I did not know until about five seconds ago. It's based on a novel that was actually written uh, like within 10 years of this film. Hmm. And the, and the, um, the guy that wrote the novel actually wrote the screenplay. So he was very involved in this as well. Uh, John Mantley, who was an actor, writer, director, screenwriter, uh, worked on Gunsmoke, <laughs> uh, which I find fascinating. Wow. Cool. Oh, and he was in the Air Force, so he's got a little bit of military background with him as well, which I suppose makes a little bit of sense considering what this movie does start to touch on. True. He was in the Royal Canadian Air Force, so. Interesting. Well, this is, I mean, it's just a fascinating film and I want to know more about it. I want to read the novel. I bet, I bet the novel doesn't, uh, differ too much from the finished film. If it was screen written by the same dude. Probably not. That's I, I've not read it either, but I have a feeling it's pretty similar. And in case you forget, you're watching a science fiction movie. We've got one of the lead guys from war of the worlds in here. So, Oh yes. Gene yeah. Barry. Uh, playing uh, the lead role, Jonathan Clark, who was Dr. Clayton Forrester, <laughs> not from MST3K, in the 1953 classic War of the Worlds, which was on MKR, covered by you and my wife, Tracy, back in episodes 59 and wow, 60. it's been that long. And I know we yeah. also did a little bit where we went to go see it here locally, we being me and Chris McMillan, Dominique Lamsey's and David Heath. And we talked briefly about it then too. I don't remember what episode that was in, but I can try to find it in the archives and make sure it's in the show notes. I didn't recognize him at first because of that mustache. The first <laughs> time I saw this, I didn't realize that was him. And then, you know, he goes and shaves. So it's like, oh, okay. The voice gives it away to me. Yeah. As soon as I heard the voice, I, I knew that it was the same guy from War of the Worlds. I don't know why it is, but... Uh, yeah, that uh, that gave it away. And, you know, he's not the only War of the Worlds alumni in this film. Well, I was going to say he's got an amazing voice to go back to that real quick. And I was a little surprised yep. that he wasn't like a radio reporter because of that voice. He's got such a great voice as opposed to a, a newspaper oh. man in the movie. Anyway, what's the other War of the Worlds connection there? Paul Freese. That's right. So that's speaking <laughs> of radio voices. Speaking of radio voices. Yes. <laughs> He, uh, he plays a newscaster, uh, Ward Mason, and he's uncredited in this film. Of course, his name is Ward Mason. That's such an awesome name. Yes. <laughs> I, I want to I, I believe that there's some alternate reality where there's some pulp adventure series uh, from the 50s and 60s, kind of like a pre-Batman kind of thing, but the, his alter ego, his human identity or secret identity is Ward Mason. You know, I'm Ward Mason, <laughs> you know, defender of whatever. Just, it's a great name. And I would be remiss if I didn't mention that he is a Disney legend. Yep. Was named a Disney legend in 2006. Mm -hmm. uh, he was the voice of Ludwig von Drake. Yeah. One of my favorite Disney characters. <laughs> Professor Ludwig von Drake. They haven't done much with him lately, have they? No, they have not. I like that guy. One of my favorites is the Spectrum song that he sings. Oh, Okay. And uh, he's also the ghost host in Disney's Haunted Mansion and the auctioneer pirate in the original Pirates of the Caribbean attractions. Yeah, he's done a lot of work with Disney. I mean, he didn't just do oh, Louis yeah. Van Drake, who, again, if I had to look at any of the ancillary, you know, duck characters, he's my favorite. I have a hard time between him and, and Uncle Scrooge. I like Uncle Scrooge, too, but I, you know, I, I don't know if I was just too much. I was a nerd growing up. I liked science and figuring stuff out and. You know, 
there's this duck dude who was smart and he was my guy. In, in my favorite Paul Freeze voice in a non-Disney role. Yeah. Boris Badenoff from the Rocky and Bullwinkle show. Yeah. <laughs> he did a lot of voice work, a lot of animation, but he was also an actor too. And it's always kind of a pleasant surprise to see him when he's in front of the camera and you actually see the face that goes yep. with the name. I didn't notice it too much this time around, but I've said it before and I'm going to say it again. There's one movie. Let me see if I can find it real quick. Oh, he was in, he did the, one of the voices in the Hobbit in the seventies. I didn't realize that. Yep. Uh, he did do the narration in the Milpitas Monster, which we have shown on the stream. Space Master X7. Uh, I like that movie a lot. I don't think I've talked about it here. But the first time I saw this movie and I saw Paul Freese, my thought was, he looks a lot like Nick Brown from the B-movie cast. <laughs> <laughs> now, not so much in this film. But no, not this film. <laughs> I just thought, dude, that's that, that dude looks like Nick. <laughs> oh man anyway uh space master x7 really good film came out the following year in 1958 i've not talked about it here on the show scott have you seen it i have not seen that want to talk about it sometime uh, if i ever get a chance to see it all right we'll make it happen it's not in the public domain either unfortunately but you know we'll figure it out anyway uh so that's a sneak preview of things to come at some point do you know, to bring it back to Monster World, do you know who else Paul Freeze voiced? I want to go to Monster World so bad. <laughs> Tell me. Boo Berry in the original Monster Serial commercial. That makes sense. <laughs> I could I could hear him doing that Peter Lorre-esque yep. kind of voice. But yeah, he did a lot of work. Disney, J. Ward Productions, which is where the, yep. you know, the... the Boris Badenoff. Yes. <laughs> uh, a whole lot. So, uh, yeah, he didn't he, uh, Burgermeister Meister Burger. That was him. That was him. That was him. <laughs> <laughs> and as much as we're talking about him on the 27th day, you'd think he's a major role in this, but I think he's on the screen maybe five minutes. You, and you maybe hear him a little <laughs> bit longer. And that's about yeah. it. That's about it. So, yeah. But Gene Barry as Jonathan Clark is one of the main characters. We mentioned him already. Mm hmm. The other main character that we see the most is Valerie French. You know anything about her? Not much at all. So I didn't know a lot about her either. And I'm going to go back to the press book. Now, I assume most listeners know, but, and I don't know if they do this as much anymore for a lot of the movies because so much fits online or whatever. But back in the day, <laughs> studios and distributors would send, uh, press books and materials to theaters and, and drive-ins to help promote the movie. Uh, sometimes it was just a four-page brochure that would show you what movie poster styles are available if you wanted to order a particular movie style, or a movie poster style, excuse me. So if you wanted like a lobby card versus a full one sheet or whatever, you could select which one you wanted. Uh, sometimes it would have an order form for you to order and a 45 RPM record of a radio ad that you can maybe get your local radio station to play. Uh, sometimes it would have a script that you could do your own recording. And then there would be these, for lack of a better term, mock newspaper articles that you could then clip out and submit to your local newspaper. The idea is that they would run it and then help promote the movie. And these were written by the studio's press department. So how true or accurate they were 
you know, who knows? It was all press and Hollywood did what Hollywood does and still does. You know, it's, it's, it's an imagination factory. So, uh, what I'm getting at in the press book, there is an article titled power to destroy the world given five in 27th day, uh, meaning there's five characters that are given the power or whatever. One of the pieces of this particular article on the subheadings curbs the curves. And I'm going to read it to you. <laughs> Curvaceous British beauty, Valerie French, loves above all to swim. But she doesn't recommend it to girls who want that, quote, hourglass figure. Valerie, who is currently starring with Jean Barry in Columbia Pictures' The 27th Day, found out that a full summer of swimming can play hob with a girl's figure. After a summer of swimming, Valerie had to trim down from a 40, 27, 39 to her magnificent 37, 21, 36. She carried the latter eyeful into filming on the 27th day. Spectacular science fiction thriller based on John Mantley's novel. Okay, there is so much you could talk about with this movie when promoting the movie. But they focus on Valerie French's figure and why she you shouldn't swim every day. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> Trimmed down from 40, 27, 39 to her magnificent 37, 21, 36. 21, the second number is the waist, right? It's the bust, waist, and hips. thighs? Hips? I think it's hips. I don't know. But come on. <laughs> and it's a shame because I think she's very good in this movie. Oh, she's fantastic. As, a, as an actress. I think she and Jean Barry have awesome chemistry together. You know, if it was handled by any other quote-unquote couple, I wouldn't necessarily believe the couple of these two in this film. There are a few moments in the movie where if it was handled just a little less deftly, I would roll my eyes and be like, really? Of course, the, the white man and the white woman fall in love. Of course, you know. But in yeah. this case, I bought it because of their chemistry and their interactions with each other. Plus, it's not like she's wearing a swimsuit or anything. You don't have to worry about whether or not she's got a 27 or 21 inch waist. Yep. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. She's wears sweaters and what? <laughs> and in fact, she, when they're in their hiding place, she actually tells uh, Jonathan to leave the room while she changes clothes to get ready for bed. Right. And, and we, and we go with Jonathan. So they weren't really promoting her character as that type of person. It, it seems odd that they did that in the press kit. So here's another clip. Here's another uh, sub column, I guess, or column quit British films because they lack real woman roles. One of the reasons lovely British star Valerie French quit London for Hollywood was to become a woman on the screen. That is, there is no place for real women in British motion pictures, says Valerie, who stars with Jean Barry and Columbia pictures, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so you've got the one article about how she had to slim down to be this woman. And then this other article about how she's a real woman. Like, come on. I, I guess she wasn't uh, right for hammer glamour. Is that what she's referring to? <laughs> Very much a woman in real life. The British beauty rebelled at the fate she saw in store for herself in English films. In British films, she says, either you have to be a tramp, a strumpet, a courtesan, a femme fatale, a lady of the evening, or the oversweet tutu feminine darling of a girl or wife. <laughs> okay yeah okay okay <laughs> I didn't see her as any of those roles in this film at all neither did I 
<laughs> Miss French is certainly not, quote unquote, like that in the 27th day, <laughs> it says. I, I love these old press kits and I love reading this stuff. And I also love reading the Ballyhoo, the, the suggestions that they have to promote these movies in your local market. And they have uh, some suggestions if you're going to run it at the drive-in, uh, the showmanship section of the press kit. They've got suggestions for running advertisements on radio and television for uh, the theater itself reaching out to uh, local astronomy clubs to have them get involved. Uh, one is getting the civil defense force to show up. <laughs> like, I don't know if that's going to be a great idea. Um, <laughs> they, they do have, and I ought to print these up. I actually ought to put this on the website. Uh, you can print out uh, a card that you can give out as a handout. If you print it out on light cardboard stock, it's good for one round trip ticket to outer space on the 27th day. <laughs> I'll, I'll print that up and put that on the website. Um. <laughs> now see, I want, I, now I want some civil defense out there handing those cards out, except for it's Bert the turtle. Ah, there you go. There you go. Now that song's stuck in my head. There you go. Uh, but yeah, this stuff is just fascinating, man. You know, work with local distributors of the local science fiction magazines. I love that they assume, and maybe this is how it was, but apparently there were enough local science fiction magazines across the country to work with. Well, now I want to read some of these local science fiction yeah. magazines. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, they're talking about bringing the civil defense forces. For the drive-in, if you've gotten the number 27 on your license plate, you get a free show. <laughs> that would be awesome. Yeah, this is some really <laughs> cool stuff, man. Really cool stuff. They recommend having kids come out dressed up as a spaceman and putting them on parade for a prize or whatever. Yeah, it's just neat. Really neat stuff. Uh, and a lot of the artwork that will eventually make its way and has made its way onto various t-shirts and all that at the Monster Kid Radio Tea Public Shop comes from a lot of these press kits. Now, the artwork for this movie's cover or this episode's cover is from a lobby card, but... Yeah, this stuff is great. Well, should we look at some of the other uh, actors that are in the film? Yeah, I kind of got sidetracked there with the uh, the curvaceous Valerie French not being skinny enough. How about Arnold Moss? He's got such a wonderful voice as well, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Did you recognize him from anything? Star Trek, baby. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes. Governor Kodos. Yeah. Also known as Kodos the Executioner. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Star Trek, man. Yeah. Season one, episode 12 of the original series, The Conscience of the King. Which holds a special place in my heart because uh, Jeff Pollier does the uh, unorganized, unofficial, uh, man, Jeff, I'm sorry, I'm going to get it wrong. It's, it's TUDAC is, is the abbreviation or the uh, the acronym where he does... Uh, he writes scripts based on different genre properties and then invites people to come to a cold reading that he then records and puts out as a podcast. Uh, nobody knows ahead of time what role they're going to get. You get the script maybe like the day before, if not that, if not later. Mm -hmm. So you show up, he draws names, he assigns roles, and you read it. And I got to play Kirk on a reading of The Conscious of the King. So That sounds like such a fun time. I My schedule is never synced up with when he's doing those that I'm able to do it. But I, I think that would be so much fun just to blindly not know who you're going to play or, or you, he kind of tells you on his website, what show they're going to do, but you don't have mm -hmm. the script. 
Yeah. Um, I've done Kirk on one and I played young Spock in an adaptation of an, of the uh, animated Star Trek episode where it's young Spock doing stuff. Um, so that was fun too. But, uh, back to, uh, Arnold Moss. I think he's great in this film. I, he's not in it very much, but he's so just kind of the, the stoic alien that just is telling you like it is telling you everything. And, but he's, he's not, you know, like your typical alien where he's going to attack you or anything. He's just laying the whole thing out for you. He, he feels more of like the day there stood still style alien yes, yes. versus, I don't know any of the others like earth versus the flying saucer or whatever. He's, I mean, obviously what he's giving everybody is deadly and it could end up poorly, but he's not going to do it. He's nope. just kind of, here's the deal gang. Listen to my awesome voice as I tell you what's going on. <laughs> Cause I love his voice. His voice is so great. Yep. We're not going to do anything, but we fully expect you will. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's some other great characters in here, too, and great actors and, and performers. But to me, those are the three that really stood out. Uh, Moss, French, and Barry. And I'm glad you brought all three of them up. There is one other one that I wanted to mention. Okay. Theodore Marcus. Okay. He is Colonel Gregor. They never say exactly what country, but the one from behind the Iron Curtain in this film. They all have vaguely Russian accents. Yes. Not quite. Yeah. <laughs> but they never, they never call them out as Russian. Anyway, you have the, the, the Soviet general secretary and you have the private who's also um, informed by the alien given these devices. And, and, one, and there's one scene where he uh, charges Theodore Marcus with um, making their private talk. You have to find out what the alien told him, basically. Okay. He's also a, a Star Trek alum. I, you know, while you were saying that, I was looking him up and oh my goodness, he's the guy in Cat's Paw. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Season two, episode one in Cat's Paw. He was a Korob in that one. Yeah. Uh, Cat's Paw, the only episode that was really technically a Halloween episode for original Star Trek. Yeah, that's great. And then, of course, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention uh, Ralph Clanton who was uh, Mr. Ingram in this film. He was helping the German scientists when he was in the hospital and stuff. He mm -hmm. was in uh, Disney's 1961, the absent minded professor. Oh, okay. So I had to mention him too. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, so it's, it's a science fiction movie. If you haven't picked that up, I mean, we've said it repeatedly and it's not your traditional monster on the loose. Aliens are coming alien invasion. It's a lot more cerebral than that. And it doesn't really pull a lot of punches. Uh, there, there's a real sense of threat and, and doom. And this could really go south quickly or sideways quickly on this. In one thing that I wish was a little different, and, and we'll talk about that. And there's a few things that we wish played out maybe a little differently or maybe, you know, not exactly what we were given on screen is what we think really happened. You know, that sort of thing. We'll talk about all that. We'll talk about the movie itself. But Scott... You want to do a round of the Classic Five first? Sure. The Classic Five! All right, so for listeners who are just now joining us, the Classic Five is a game that we've been playing for years here on the show. We play it every Saturday at the Monster Kid Movie Club movie stream over at twitch.tv slash Radio. It is a literal deck of cards. 
that I love to shuffle right next to the microphone. And I think that's the first time I pulled it off without actually hitting the microphone. No editing of that, folks. All right. Each one of these cards says this or that. Which movie do you prefer? Style question on them. There are no wrong answers. It's just a way to get monster kids talking about their favorite topic, monster movies. Scott, are you ready to play a round of the Classic Five? I am ready, sir. All right, here we go. Uh, Some old cards that I'm sure people have heard repeatedly and maybe a few new questions thrown in here and there. Let's start with a new question. Who is your favorite or what is your favorite 1950s science fiction movie alien? Marsha Brady. Okay, we're not at the stream. (laughs) Although... I want somebody to write me some fan fiction where one of the members of the Brady Bunch is, in fact, an alien from outer space. (laughs) That would be awesome. That would be amazing. A 70s um, alien. (laughs) And I want to see the opening screen with the the, the tic-tac-toe boxes with the blue backgrounds with all their faces. And at the very end of the opening credit sequence, Marsha just turns into a real alien form. And then it goes to black. Just <laughs> All right. What do you got for me? Uh, could you repeat the question? I forget exactly what the question was. 1950s science fiction alien. Who's your favorite? The ones I like, and I, and I don't know the exact year, but uh, I like the Mars Attacks aliens from Topps cards. Are those from the 50s? Oh, I don't know. Maybe see. This is one I just kind of made up off the top of my head. So uh, you know what? We'll we'll say that that works. Why not? And maybe I'll just tweak the question when we put it out. Um, those aliens are awesome. <laughs> now I'm looking. Mars it attacks up. Uh, sixty-two. Sixty-two. So it's not quite fifty. So that's all right. It counts. But I, I I've always loved that card set. Yeah, it's a great card set. See, I'm surprised. I would have thought you would have went Metal Luna Mutant. I like that one quite a bit. But um, that was the first thing that popped into my mind was the the tops cards. Those cards are awesome. I haven't watched the movie in forever, but I remember enjoying myself the first time I saw the Mars Attacks movie by Burton too. Yeah, the, the um, movie's good, but it it doesn't quite capture the irreverence of the cards. I think. Yeah. Good point. The Burton film's very irreverent. <laughs> <laughs> Right on. I like it. All right. So the tops cards, Mars attacks. I want to know more about that. I want to do an episode on that. I would be Figure awesome. out where that came from. Yeah. I, I have the, um, they put out a book a few years ago that has reprints of all the cards. I have that book. Yeah. I want to learn more about them now. Huh? All right. Anyway, uh, how are you on your Kaiju? Um, not too bad, but not great. What kaiju that never had a film of its own do you wish had a standalone movie? Ooh, a standalone movie. Yeah. Boy, that's a good question. So Rodan had a standalone, Mothra had a standalone, and obviously Godzilla. But I think once you get past that, they all start yeah. teaming, appearing in each other's films. So yeah, I'm thinking King Ghidra yeah. or Mechagodzilla. Ooh, a Mechagodzilla film by itself would be kind yeah. of cool. I'm, I'm, those two are the ones that I'm thinking that I will go with. I like it. And now, King Ghidra is just, yeah, awesome anyway, <laughs> but... But uh, Mechagodzilla, man, been in an Mechagodzilla mood lately. Uh, for me, I want King Caesar or King Caesar. 
I, I don't know what it is about that goofy dog looking thing, but I love him. <laughs> I love him. Um, or, I mean, Jet Jaguar already had his own movie, but, you know, what more Jet Jaguar. But King Caesar, 1974's film, Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla. I, you know, I say he's a dog looking thing, but he's really kind of based on a, on a excuse me, uh, Japanese sculpture idol monster thing, but to me, he looks like a dog with big floppy ears. Now, now I want to see a killer shrew kaiju-sized. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And honestly, I want to see it in the style that uh, you were showing off on the stream from that uh, artist, which I'm blanking on his name at the moment. Oh, for my upcoming book, Monsters from the Public Domain. Your, yes. Yeah. <laughs> your guide to public domain monsters and their use in Dungeons and Dragons campaigns. You know what? Stay tuned because at the end of this episode, I'm going to mention that because there's still a few days left on the Kickstarter and we've got some new stretch goals in mind. So, yeah, stay tuned for that. Yeah, the artwork is amazing. The artwork's awesome. All right, card number three. What classic monster would make a good superhero? Um, Gamera. <laughs> wow okay we're not just you see I, when i ask that i go to things like well invisible man be kind of cool you know that sort of thing no you're like not nah, mm. giant turtle <laughs> giant turtle <laughs> i like turtles <laughs> <laughs> if this was a video podcast i'd cut to that clip right now <laughs> i may still just pull the audio from it <laughs> Back here live at the Waterfront Village with my friend, the zombie, Jonathan. You're looking good. Jonathan just got an awesome face paint job. What do you think? I like turtles. All right. You're great zombie. And good times here at the Waterfront Village. Open for the next 11 days. Now, the Invisible Man, he, he kind of is playing that uh, series that you played at the Astronomy Club. He uh -huh. was almost a superhero there. Yeah, and there's an invisible agent as well where he goes, yep. you know, fights the Nazis. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then. All right, card number four. Who else could have or should have played a mad scientist? Ooh. Planking on his name. Is an airplane. The lead guy? Not the lead guy. The guy who does origami in the control tower? <laughs> No, no. Guy the doctor. <laughs> not Nielsen. Not yes, Leslie Nielsen. Nielsen. Really? Yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. Because he was good in Forbidden Planet. He could do serious. Yes. It's just not what he became known for in the second half of his career. I would like to have seen him try it. Or if you're going to do a spoof movie of Mad Scientists. I think he would have been really good. Him or Mel Brooks would have been really good as a mad scientist. You know, I'm trying to imagine Mel Brooks as a mad scientist, and I just, I can't get away from Gene Wilder from Young Frankenstein sure. and just seeing Brooks doing what Wilder did. That's why I didn't mention that specifically, because he didn't, he wasn't the mad scientist there. It was Gene Wilder, who is amazing as a mad yeah. scientist. Huh. In a spoof role, I think either one of them could have been really good. All right. But, but, but if you want a serious answer. No, hey, no, that's fine. You take, take it I, any way you want, man. Well, if you want a serious answer, and I'm going to tie it back to the 27th day, and it'd be Arnold Moss. Oh, he'd be great. He would be an amazing mad scientist. I could see him turning on the creep, the, the villainy. Uh -huh. 
Oh, wow. That'd be awesome. We got one more question, right? I believe so. I'm just going to grab this one randomly. Favorite mummy movie? Um, I have to go with the original, the first one. Death. Eternal punishment. For anyone who opens this casket. The mummy, is it dead or alive, human or inhuman? You'll know, you'll see, you'll feel the awful, creeping, crawling terror that stands your hair on end and brings a scream to your lips. There's nothing on earth like the mummy. You will not remember what I show you now, and yet I shall awaken memories of love and crime and death. Now I know his horrible plan. He is going to kill her and make her a living mummy like himself. I'm going to, yeah, I would either go with, with the, the first uh, Universal Mummy movie or the first Hammer Mummy movie. They're both neck and neck to me. The Mummy. Fear will freeze you when you face it. The Mummy. Torn from the darkest tomb of the pharaohs, it rises from the quiet dust of centuries to wreak a strange vengeance against mankind. The Mummy. It tears steel bars like paper. It snaps men's spines like matchsticks. Walks through bullets like a ghost. It sees without eyes. It lives without breath. Yet its desires are strangely, madly human. The motion picture screen's most shocking experience in suspense. In Killing Technicolor. The Mummy. Uh, I feel like you get more hot mummy action in Hammer's Mummy. That sounded so bad. Well, it definitely has the best uh, poster. Yes, it does. <laughs> and and the best uh, <laughs> uh, retroactively fixing the script to meet the, to match the poster <laughs> by a, a cast member on set while show shooting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the story being that if you watch the movie, you'll see at one point Cushing's character. It's not a spear. It's like a curtain rod or something, isn't it? I believe so. That he impales Christopher Lee's mummy with. And that was not in the original script. <laughs> uh, Cushing wanted to do that. The, my understanding is that Cushing wanted that to be done in the film because the movie poster has a shaft of light shooting through the mummy's chest. And it's like, well, where'd the hole come from? I'll put it there. I'll put it there. Now, that poster is amazing. Oh, it's awesome. The Classic Five! Well, that was the Classic Five. I know we didn't do it at the beginning, and I didn't want to skip it. Let's get back to the 27th day. Well, should we uh, go into kind of the what we do see on screen? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I want to do a beat-by-beat breakdown. The setup's really simple. Oh, yeah. But deceivingly deep as well. It starts off, we're seeing just uh, one of our main characters, and that's uh, Eve Wingate, uh, Valerie French's character. She's kind of uh, playing on a on a beach in England with her boyfriend, 
and she all of a sudden there's a, a dark shadow uh, looming over her and, and says, Eve Wingate, I need you to come with me. And I like that because it's a dark shadow and then it goes to a, a flash of light as well. Yep. Yep. So it's like this this weird kind of flash thing happening. It's great. But it's, it, it's a simple thing. It's a simple, subtle trick that works really well. And, and we end up seeing that for some other characters. We get a newsman from Los Angeles where uh, the dark shadow appears there and says his name and he has to leave. We get a Russian private soldier. Um, is visited. We get a woman from a small Chinese village. It's in the middle of, of a war situation. And then we get a German scientist who's on his way to America for a conference. And the alien, well, with the shadow visits him. We find out later it's the alien and tells him to, to come with him. Actually says, your trip to America will be delayed. <laughs> One of the movie posters that you can get uh, has all five of them on the poster. And they're described as German scientist, American newspaper man, Russian soldier, Chinese peasant girl, and English bathing beauty. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very <laughs> stereotypical descriptions of all of them, but I guess it mm. does work. Now, the alien is speaking in English to everybody because, I mean, it's American film, English-made film. We do learn later that everybody's hearing their alien speak in their own native language. Yes. The, so, the Russian's hearing Russian and so on. And we, we follow the, the five of them on a uh, alien ship who is leaving Earth. It's been a, a little while since I saw this, and I didn't remember them actually going into space. And my wife is watching it. And at one point, the alien tells them, you know, they don't believe that they're in space and tells them to look for themselves. And they go to the center of the room and they look down. And Tracy's like, they stole that from Mission to Mars from Disney, because that's pretty <laughs> much the attraction is you're sitting around in the in a big circle theater. And there's a big screen on the floor. And you look down there, it looks like the Earth is going away. Look, you're actually leaving the planet. <laughs> so wait, wait, this stole that from Disney? <laughs> The other, the other, the other way around. <laughs> but hey, if it works, if the yeah. trick works, use it, you know? Exactly. But uh, yeah, the, the alien comes, you know, he introduces himself, just call me the alien. We never get any kind of official name or anything for him. And he's from another universe. Did you catch that he says, I'm from another universe? Not another yeah. system or anything? I did catch that too. <laughs> All right. But he basically says that uh, the sun that supports his planet is getting ready to go Nova. Not supernova, just Nova. <laughs> and um, they don't have much time. They only have like, what, 35 days or something like that left. And they need to find another planet to relocate to. But they're not the type of people that will conquer another world and, and kill everybody. Plus they said, if we attack another planet, we're going to destroy a lot of its structures and resources and everything. And we don't want to do that. So we're going to put the five of you in charge. We're going to, to give each one of you a device that will basically kill all humans. It won't, uh, affect any buildings. It won't affect any resources or animals or anything. And we 
basically fully expect you guys to use these because that's what we expect from uh, people of Earth. And then you guys will destroy each other and we'll just kind of move in on the empty planet. Right. I mean, they're like, well, you'll, you're just a few seconds away from discovering solar night and then, you know, you'll end up. <laughs> <laughs> you stupid, stupid minds. <laughs> it's a similar type thing, but um, a lot more highbrow than plan nine. I think There's a double feature for you. Yeah, there Oof. you go. 27th day in plan nine. Wow. Each one of them gets this little packet of capsules. And each one is specifically wired into the thoughts of the person they give it to. They're the only ones that can open the packets and get the capsules out. Once the capsules are out, anybody can activate them. You give a longitude and a latitude and it would kill all humans within a 300 mile radius of that longitude and latitude. So if all of the devices are used, it will completely annihilate the Earth. All the humans. Which, I mean, it gives us an opportunity. It turns into a really cool thought experiment. You know, what would you do if whatever. Yep. But it's also a very passive-aggressive way to just, to conquer a planet. You know? <laughs> like, well, we don't want to do it, but uh, here, uh, here's, you, you get a choice, wink, wink. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like Our prime directive won't allow us to kill you, but we believe you're going to kill yourselves, so we're just going to accelerate the process. Right. Which, I mean, once you accept that setup, it really does turn into a really interesting kind of think piece. You know, what would you do? What do the characters do? And there are going to be some minor spoilers in here, and I was actually a little disappointed that the quote-unquote Chinese peasant girl took herself out of the equation pretty early. Yeah, there's the one thing that I I forgot to mention. The alien tells them if they die, if one of those five people die before the capsules are used, their capsules will become inert, won't do anything. And they're sent back to basically the the point where they left with the capsules. Mm -hmm. And immediately the the Chinese... um, Yeah, so right before she was taken... Didn't we see her? We assume it's her husband or her spouse or a family yeah, member killed some, in front some, of her. Yeah. So, someone from her family that you see uh, soldiers coming into her house and, and they pull out. It was either her brother, husband, father, something. You don't really know. And it, it, this guy is shot right in front of her. Mm-hmm. So she's already distraught from that. And, she, and her, she's sent back to her house, which is sort of kind of torn up quite a bit because it's in the middle of war. And you see her go to an a, um, altar in her house and she places the the capsules on the on that. And then you see her pull out a knife and. And she kills herself. Exactly. And you see yeah. then the capsules kind of. Uh, turned to what looks like they kind of turned to stone. Yeah. And then they start to crumble a little bit. Yep. And I mean, that's one choice and it's definitely a, a hard hitting choice, but I also feel like it kind of robbed us of the opportunity to see her ongoing moral struggle with, well, I just had a family member get killed in front of me. This uh, occupying military forces here, 
but if I do this, you know, just I think that would have been an even an, a, another layer of, oh. of uh, exploration. But, you know, I get it. I think it also opens up a plot hole that later in the movie, at the way that this movie ends, mm-hmm. without those capsules, I don't know how it actually worked. But we'll get to that when we get to the end of the movie. <laughs> That's a good point. That's a good point. And, and not that I'm about, like, you know, remaking movies or anything like that. But if this movie were to be remade, I would want to see it done like a, like maybe like a two-part TV miniseries, I guess, or two-part movie event. Mm-hmm. And, and don't have the quote-unquote peasant girl kill herself right away, um, you know, and kind of explore that a little bit more, too. But that's... I don't know. Maybe the novel does include that because you can do more with a novel. Who knows? Well, you've also got Eve Wingate. She gets back to being there on the beach off of the coast on the coast of England. And immediately she throws her capsules into the sea. Right. So they're they're gone, you know, unless somebody's going to find them. And that, I mean, if you're going to hide it somewhere so that nobody can find them again, I suppose that's as good a place as any. Right. Yes and no, because her boyfriend at the time sees mm-hmm. it happening. And because there's a radio report later in the movie where he obviously told authorities that she threw it into the ocean. But a person can't throw it miles into the ocean. So I would think you'd be able to find it relatively easy. Well, oceans work differently over in England, Scott. Ah. I didn't know if you knew that. They just kind of come to a stop and then they drop a 90 degrees. I, I don't know. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, they're not going to. Good unless, point. Yeah, good point. Know, I, I guess the tide could have taken it farther out to sea. Mm-hmm. But there's a there's a chance that it just got lodged in some rocks there because it didn't look like a, a, a perfect place to go swimming. <laughs> Get out there with a metal detector and go to work. And I would think that the governments would have spent no expense to try to get that capsules her capsules back so that's what would have happened in the sequel you know the 27th day part the 28th day <laughs> that's the sandra bullock movie isn't it <laughs> oh, oh wow okay anyway <laughs> well while they're all up in the flying saucer she's the only one that thinks to ask hey what's your name yes. of the other english-speaking person here uh, before they get sent back down to to Earth, so she's able to look him up. He tells her that he's a newspaper reporter in Los Angeles. So once you know like, they get back down to Earth and they're doing their thing, she's able to look him up, and that's how those two come together. Uh, and they they go on the lam. They're, they're yep. hiding she, from the authorities. She makes plans to to fly from England to Los Angeles. And we see the other characters just kind of going back to the, at first, back to their normal existence. We don't see too mm-hmm. much else. Right. While Eve Wingate is on her flight to L.A., the alien shows up once again. Yeah, the alien outs them. He outs all five of them. He yeah. commandeers all communications across the planet. TV, newspaper, everything. I mean, not newspaper, radio and everything. Right. And broadcasts live outs all five people, tells them that the whole fate of the planet is in their hands now. And of course, Jonathan Clark sees this. He's at a bar having lunch and sees it on the news. And he kind of slips out before the alien actually names the names and go, starts going on the land. He goes to the airport to pick up Eve Wingate and they immediately go into hiding. 
And I, I do like where they're hiding. I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, it's a really cool, I mean, way to do it. It's not, so if I was hiding from the government, I don't know if I would have hidden there. Uh, I don't know <laughs> if I would have fought either. You want to tell them where they hid? They hid at a horse racetrack. Yeah. And at the time, it wasn't in season. So there was there was just one guy there as a, as a guard kind of roving, roaming around. And I'm thinking to myself, well, first off, how would he have known that this place was out of season? But he does mention that he used to be a sports writer and he covered this track all the time. So he knew about this place and everything. So he he shows up there and he and Eve uh, find what looks like a little small uh, apartment or break room or something where the jockeys would have uh, maybe spent some time. And they kind of commandeer it. And their plan is to hang out there for the 27 days because that was I don't think we mentioned that where the title of the movie comes from, all of the capsules, if they're not used, will become inert in 27 days because the aliens won't have time to take over our planet at that point. So they they expect us to destroy ourselves in 27 days. So their idea was we'll just hide out for 27 days and nobody will ever find us. And then we're but their flaw in their plan is assuming that the other people that got the capsules are also hiding. Right. Which, unfortunately, they're not. Well, yeah, the, the one Russian soldier, once he's, he's outed, once his name becomes known, his superior officers, you know, the Soviet general, whatever, they bring him, they, they basically take him into custody. It, it's yeah. not a, hey, you want to help us out? It's a, why didn't you tell us about this when this first happened three days ago? And there's an interrogation and the whole bit. The Russian leadership, they don't know exactly what the the private knows so they want to know like you tell us what they were what you were told and they they do get the packet with the three capsules in it but of course no force on earth can open them is what they're told no physical force i like that the uh, german scientist says later no physical force on earth can open them i felt really bad i think of everybody here i felt obviously outside of the person who ended up killing herself i felt really bad for the russian soldier oh i did too um I felt like he was really struggling with what was right for the planet versus what was right for his country. And he does, a, I don't know who the actor was off the top of my head, but he does a really good job uh, performance wise without speaking English, without speaking when he's in tears, trying not to talk about what's happening. And it's moving, man. I think he was trying to go into hiding because there yeah. is one quick scene where he's being chased by other soldiers and captured. I think he was had the same idea that Jonathan Clark and Eve Wingate had, and he was going to try to hide for the 27 days. But he didn't get away in time. Yeah. He was really good. Really good. I really liked his performance. I did too. In this. And then the, the fourth... Uh, person who's still around is the German scientist who was coming to the U.S. and just happens to be coming to the West Coast, which is convenient for everybody. But he gets hit by a car once. Yeah. Once find out that everybody's looking for him, he he cr- tries to cross the street, gets hit by a car, and of course he has uh, a concussion. I think because he doesn't know what's going on there for a little bit, and he's put in guarded custody in the the U.S. government takes his capsules and they're trying to do experiments on them to try to figure out, just like the Russians are trying to uh, work on their private's capsules and try to figure out how to open it. And, and the German scientist, eventually, he does come around and he tells you know, the authorities that there there is no force on Earth that can open these. Um, 
I, I did just go look him up real quick. I'm going to mispronounce it. I don't know what his uh, background is. Azmat Janti? <laughs> A-Z-E-M-A-T is his first name. J-A-N-T-I is his last name. He played the, the Russian soldier, uh, Ivan Godofsky. And this is his first film role. Uh, he did one episode of a TV show before this. Um, he did very little work after this as well. Did a few TV things here and there and that's it. But, uh, yeah, he's just so good. Yeah. And unfortunately there's not much in his IMDb page. It didn't even say where he was born. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. He, he is, he is very good. I, I think most of the cast in this is very good. Oh, I'm, I'm very happy with the cast in this. Very happy. I like the cast a lot. A whole lot. Um, I didn't have I didn't have any issues with anybody. I think Valerie French is a lot more than her skinny waist in this. I think Gene uh, Barry. When it comes to some of these leading men from these genre pictures of this era, and I'm gonna say it, I'm so sorry. I love John Agar, but sometimes it's real easy to just say, "Hey, that's John Agar," as opposed to, "Hey, that's Cleve from Revenge of the Creature" or whatever from this person. You know, it's is it John Agar because he's just so much John Agar. You know, Gene Barry has the potential to do that, but he plays such a unique character in this that I thought War of the Worlds when I first saw him, but after that, I was done. I didn't need him anymore. I, I knew him as Jonathan Clark in this movie. Does that make sense? Oh yeah, yeah. I, I lose the the actor role. I lose him as a role. I don't see him as Dr. Forrester anymore very quickly. Yeah. I could have easily thought him, thought him as Dr. Forrester all the way through. And I quickly outgrew that or forgot about that. <laughs> It'd be even a harder sell for you because of your background with MST3K to be like, yeah, yes. that's Dr. Clayton Forrester. Of course <laughs> it's not, you know, but yeah, no, it, it's really, he's really good. Yep. So good in this. Yeah. The entire cast is just phenomenal. That's another reason why I felt a little robbed by, you know, the Chinese <laughs> woman <laughs> killing herself was like, I wonder if she's just as good as everybody else. And boy, her story would have been interesting. But anyway, eventually he does break and tell his superiors what it's about. And I think he's tricked. I mean, he's being interrogated. He's being loaded up with drugs. He, the whole bit and his superior officer kind of, well, your mother wants you to be like your father and do good for the country. Your father died for the cause, you know, and all this other stuff and really lays it on thick and finally gets it out of him. But he still can't do anything with it. Still can't open it because it's keyed to the, the Russian officers' brainwaves or whatever. Right. And while that story is happening, we eventually get our German scientists, our English bathing beauty, and our newspaper man together. I just did air quotes for bathing beauty. Um, <laughs> their, their stories eventually do kind of converge. And they realize we have no proof of what the alien is saying is really going to happen. Oh, man. This is rough. <laughs> So they're, they have to test one of these to find out, will it really kill people? So there's one guy there, an admiral in the Navy saying, well, there is off the Pacific coast, there's an area of over 300 miles of just ocean. And we could give it that, those numbers. But the problem is we'll have to have a test subject in there to find out whether they'll be killed or not. Oh my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> this is bad. And then, it, then we get like a lot of cold war stuff going on, you know, who's going to use what first and are they going to try to figure out how to use it against each other? And well, we can't use it because if we do, then they will. And 
you know, this is this race to the 27th day trying to figure out how they're going to not kill each other. Right. Because, you know, somebody and it's going to be those evil Russians are going to use it against the rest of the world. So what are you going to do? Mm. It makes you really understand, you know, the aliens were right. They knew if they gave us fire, we were going to burn ourselves, basically. Yep. And they they were right. But then, of course, you've got the German scientist the whole time. He's like. There's something I'm missing. There's something I sh- I think I should know about these. Mm-hmm. But he can't quite put his finger on it. Yeah, there's something he's missing. Something he's missing. I don't want to say what that is, but there is something that he's missing here. He thinks he figures it out. And I felt like that was kind of rushed through a little bit just to kind of understand what he was doing. Mm-hmm. But I guess I got to read the novel for that or something. I don't know. There you go. The next question I have, and it's how much farther spoiler wise should we go? Before we started recording, you asked about that. I think it's something that we should talk about. So yeah, we're, we're spoiling a moment here. The German scientist, he figures out that these capsules, depending on how you use them, they can actually be used for good. And this is a part that I personally kind of have an issue with the way this movie ends, because it's been so good up until this point. Get the German scientist and he's locked in a room. He's figured out how to use them for good. And everybody else is trying to get into the room because they hear him reading off coordinates. So they think he is launching the capsules against Russia before they can attack us. At the same time, we are flashing back to the Russians. They have their capsules open. They broke their private. The head of the Russian guy is getting ready to read the coordinates for the U.S. And their private, he finally like tries to take the, the guy out, push him off the balcony. The capsules, they fall out the balcony down to the ground below. And he goes running downstairs to get them. At the same time... Our German scientist finishes off reading everything and we go back to the the Russian and they hear, start hearing this high pitched noise. And he kind of keels down and is just as he gets to the capsules, you see him die. And it turns out what the German scientist did killed everybody who was against freedom against yeah. unity all the bad people <laughs> because yeah. he, n- now that everybody's that's against unity on the planet has been destroyed everybody who remains which just happens to be you know all of our good guys that everybody is now together and friendly all over the world and they decide that they're going to make an offer to the aliens to have them come and live in peace with us. So we have scenes where they're at the UN and they've been trying to send messages to everybody. And the, the German professor is saying, you know, they're sending out on all radio signals and everything into space. And at the very end, we have the alien come back on and agrees to earth's invitation and that they are on their way. And that's where the kind of the movie ends. It's kind of a flat ending for me. Very much. Just so. Meh. Yeah, I enjoy this movie up until, you know, know, the point where the German scientist launches the capsules is where the movie starts to fall apart with me. Yeah. And I was thinking about this after I watched it again. 
And I'm wondering now, it, it's never said, and I, so I don't know, I have nothing really to base this on or anything, but what if what the aliens told us at the beginning was a lie? What if they really weren't dying? But this was their way to test civilizations, whether are they good or bad, and whether we could coexist with them, basically join their, for lack of a better term, federation. If we weren't good people, they're not going to waste our time, their time with us. But if they could figure this out and realize that they could be a good people, maybe they're, they're worthy of our friendship. So I'm wondering if it was, the whole thing was a test. I think it could certainly, certainly be right that way for sure. And once I think of it that way, I, I like the ending better. But obviously okay. they don't say that. I mean, I guess you could have had you there at the very end when the alien agrees. Maybe you could have another scene where he shows up and explains exactly what happened. Yeah, we never quite get a a, a satisfactory ending. And maybe that's the most science fiction way of ending it anyway, right? We don't get uh, everything tied up in a neat bow, but the ending does kind of fall flat. And I remember when I watched this the first time, we go through that. We're at the U is it the UN we're at the UN and we're going to send a signal out to the aliens and the entire world has agreed to turn off all of their TVs and radio stations, which I didn't find believable either. (laughs) Uh, But the entire world has agreed to turn everything off so that the aliens can get through to us. We ask if they want to come stay with us because now there's a lot of room here because of all the bad people being killed off. The aliens say yes. The end. I I wanted more. I wanted like a a, a, a Dana Ma. I wanted something, you know. Oh, I I agree. It just it just seems to to be a hollow ending to yeah. what it was building. And but then again, I don't. In, unless we went with what I thought and you had the aliens actually show up and say this whole thing, we were, we were testing you. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure how else you could end it. Yeah, I agree. I don't know how you would have done it either. No idea. But it doesn't sour the movie for me. Um, I think there is so much to think about, so much to enjoy in this film that I think my biggest disappointment is that it just didn't keep going. I want a little bit more. And that, that to me doesn't quote unquote ruin a movie that just makes me love it even more. Cause I want to spend more time there. Yeah. It, it's a relatively short movie. It's like what less than 80 minutes long. Yeah. It's, it's really short. Uh, it runs, I had it. Yeah. 75 minutes. So hour 15. And it's it's definitely worth worth watching, even though oh, yeah. the the ending is kind of sour. The the performances here are, are really good. I did read some other people what their thoughts were, and a lot of people complain about its lack of budget or uh, money is showing because we talked about the scene at the UN, and they've obviously got stock footage of the of a UN assembly together. Sure. And then you've got our leads, what looks like they're in front of them talking. And when you see them on screen, it's pretty clear picture. But then the the stock footage is kind of grainy and old. And so they didn't spend the time to try to make those pictures look the same, like they're in the same place. It's obvious they're not together. But right. there's things like that where it's seams are showing. 
but I think it was a low budget film to begin with. And, and what they did, it's, I think it's really well done. Yeah. There's a, a few things that are either stock footage or footage that would in the movie that would turn up in other things as stock footage, you know? Um, well, did but, you recognize where the exterior shots of the spaceship came from? I did. I had, and that's exactly what I was going to say. And then you asked me and it just went out of my brain. <laughs> Earth versus the flying saucer. Yes, that's it. <laughs> I even referenced that earlier. <laughs> Another movie you and I talked about here on MK exactly Park. right way back in the day, at the very beginning. So look in the archives for that, or stay tuned because in early 2022, Monster Kid Radio is going to be releasing some books that are transcripts of some of the earlier episodes, including that one. So stay tuned for that. Cool. Which Scott gave me permission to do years ago, and then I sat on it and decided to go ahead. Yeah, we'll do that next year. So, okay. Anyway, it'll be called the Monster Kid Conversations. But yeah, they they use some stock footage, uh, some existing scenes of the flying saucer flying from that. So we get a little Harryhausen in here. Yeah, which you know I'll always take a little Harryhausen. <laughs> uh, overall, I dug the movie. Uh, how did you end up watching it? Do you have it on disc or or how'd you do it? I think I have it on the disc that I got a long time ago and then I've ripped it and had it on my personal Plex. So it, it, it has been released on DVD in the past. It's also available on DVD in the, well, in Italy. Interesting. As part of the art house sci-fi collection. <laughs> and yeah, I think that's a good way to describe this art house sci-fi. I like that. I like that too. Uh, but yeah, it's part of the Sony um, like on demand archive whatever collection they call it, uh, for 20 bucks. I think that's how I bought it. It's probably bare bones. It is very bare bones. I think it has um, maybe the trailer on it. Maybe. I can't remember. remember. When DVDs, when they would come out, when they first came out, one of the special features was interactive menu. Yes. Remember that? (laughs) Okay. Yeah, this is a bare bones release. But you know what? I'd pay $20 for this and I'd feel okay with that. I felt like I got my money's worth and then some. I like it that much. Yeah, I, I would like to see maybe a, a a Blu-ray where it's remastered. You know, it didn't look bad to begin with. True. I think some of the stock footage could be tweaked a little bit. That's why I think I would like to, I think it could look really good remastered, but it it's not like it's, you know, a lot of special effects or anything in this movie. So it's, Not at all. But, and I, I'd also like to see more of um, Gene Barry and Valerie French, French together because, like I said earlier, I think the chemistry between those two is really, really good. Yeah. I could have seen them easily playing a, a married couple in another movie. I do like the one part where they, they've been together for a few days. And Jonathan makes the comment that they have all of the downfalls of a marriage without all the benefits. <laughs> 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 you know, in, in under normal circumstances, you know, in any other movie, I'd be like, oh, God, but it worked. And there, there, there's another moment where they're talking and somebody says something about marriage and she's like, what did you say? He's like, that's, you know, yep. well, and even some of the other non-marriage sexy time talk when they first get in the cab together and they're driving and they don't want to be overheard by the, uh, the cab driver. He pulls out a radio and turns it on and. She asks, or she you know, she wants to know what's on the radio. It's rock and roll. It's it's music almost. Almost. And it's like, <laughs> like that's great. Their, their banter back and forth was awesome. Yep, I loved every moment the two of them were on the screen together. Yeah, I want to see more. Unfortunately, they didn't do any other work together. Right. I would like to see more with Valerie French. I think she 
more than capable. And, you know, I'm looking at her uh, filmography right now. Looks like a lot of TV, which means chances are it's not something to be able to get my hands on. But I would love to see her in more. Yeah, me too. I definitely would. Really good. Oh, she was in a Western with Randolph Scott. Randolph Scott. That's why I said it. (laughs) (laughs) No, I've never seen Blazing Saddles. Why do you ask? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. She was in another Western with Sean Connery. Sean Connery. That doesn't work. (laughs) No, not nearly as much. She was in uh, Shalico with Sean Connery and Bridget Bardot. Hmm. I've never seen it. Honor Blackman's in that. Well, there's another reason to see it. Yeah. Oh, and Woody Strode. Nice. Uh, the Randolph Scott film <laughs> she was in. <laughs> Randolph Scott. Uh, was called uh, Decision at Sundown, which, again, never seen. Uh, I don't think I've seen anything with her in it, to be honest. I'm looking at her filmography myself, and I got really excited for a second because I saw The Adams Chronicles, and I read it as The Adams Family Chronicles. But it's Me too. <laughs> I was like, oh, she was in an episode of, oh. oh no, it's not. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Ooh, that looks like fun. Secret of Treasure Mountain from 56. Kind of like a westerny lost gold mine story. She's one of the leads with Raymond Burr. Ooh, I'd kind of like to see that one. Well, I don't know what you're doing with the rest of your day, Scott, but I think I'm going to spend some time trying to track down some of these other movies. <laughs> yeah, uh, we're, I definitely we're recording this see. on a Sunday afternoon, and uh, I ain't got nothing else going on today. So, I'm, I'm a big <laughs> fan of Raymond Burr, so I kind of like oh, to yeah. see this. I'll, I'll see what. Yeah, we'll see if we can find it. I'm sure it's not something we'll talk about here on the show, but you know what? It'll be something to talk about with you, man. Yep. Because I love talking about movies with you, brother. This has been fun. This has been fun. It's been a long time. It's been a long time since we've just done just you and me sitting down rapping about a movie. Yep. Uh, when we are done recording, actually, I'd like to keep you on the line to talk a little bit about a more driven, centered, specific podcast project. But in the meantime, you've got your own show. Yes. At DisneyIndiana.com. Yep. We ha- are in the midst of celebrating Walt Disney World's 50th anniversary this year. They That's open- almost as long as your podcast has been going, right? <laughs> almost. Yep. Uh, <laughs> Disney World opened October 1st, 1971. And unfortunately, a lot of their big 50th anniversary plans um, were kind of nixed because of the pandemic. But we're doing a little something where each month we're picking out something that opened with the park. And we could talk about a resort. We could talk about an attraction, whatever, and kind of doing a little bit of a, a dive into it, talking about it. Like last month, we talked about the Country Bear Jamboree, which opened in 1971. Which plans for that ride were, uh, excuse me, attraction were actually predate the park. Uh, Disney had plans to build a ski resort in Mineral King, California. And they were going to have the ski resort that had a show in the evenings with audio animatronic bears that would sing. Awesome. When I was a kid, I went to Disneyland. It's the only time I've been to Disneyland was as a kid. And I loved the Country Breast Jamboree. I, I, that was one of my favorite memories of that. Uh, and we bought a couple of records, um, actual LPs at Disney. And one of them was the Country Bear Jamboree record. 
And I played that over and over and over again because I loved it. I, I don't think I even really understood <laughs> what, what it was they were taking a riff off of or what, but I just adored that, man. I was so bummed when I went to Disney World years later and it had already been shut down. Uh, backwards. It's still open to Disney World. It's closed in Disneyland. I thought it was shut down at Disney. It was closed for whatever reason when I was at Disney World. Oh. There was something going on. No, it's still in Disney World. It's still in, oh well, I gotta go then, man. Yep, bummer. Still, yeah, they closed <laughs> it in California and it replaced it with a Winnie the Pooh attraction. But there's still like something on the wall from yes. Country Bear Jamboree or something. It's something that Disney's always been good about. If you remember from the Country Bears, there is the heads of um, Max Buff and I can't remember the other one. Their heads on the wall and they interact with the the show a little bit. They're still in the Winnie the Pooh ride, if you ride through into one of the rooms, they're behind you. So you have to actually physically turn around and look behind you, but they're still there. Yeah. When I was at Disney world, it was shut down for something. I don't know if they were doing a maintenance or something. Who knows? Yeah. I was so disappointed. I was like, Oh man, I want to revisit this thing from my childhood so badly. <laughs> I got but, haunted mansion. I got Caribbean, but I didn't get my country bears. Yep. It's still open down there. Awesome. So yeah, that's what we're doing uh, for this calendar year, each month, uh, one episode a month, we're going to focus on something different. Right on. How many episodes are you up to now? You're like in year 12 or 13, aren't you? I think we just put out episode 334. Well done, brother. And uh, we put out a new episode every other Sunday. And knock on wood, we have not missed that schedule date in our entire history. It's awesome. It's a heck of an accomplishment, man. Heck of an accomplishment. Awesome. Well, you can also catch up with Scott and Tracy at the Monster Kid Movie Club on Saturday. Uh, they're almost always there. Uh, I don't think you've missed any, have you? You've actually been there pretty much every time. I've pretty much almost every time. And yeah. uh, you've even opened it up to allow me to program a little bit of it here. Mm -hmm. I've been creating the pre-show for the past 10, 12 weeks. And it's just been awesome. I've, I'm loving doing that. I, I do want to publicly thank you once again for giving me that opportunity. I've learned how to do some video editing and just had so much fun on doing that. It's addicting, man. Video edit, man. I start playing with video and I just want to, anyway. Uh, yeah, no. So Scott does the pre-show, <laughs> uh, from 11 a.m. to noonish Pacific time at Monster Kid Radio, excuse me, monsterkidmovie.club or twitch.tv slash monsterkidradio. Hop on over there and see Scott's handiwork. He usually puts together, uh, well, I mean, he always puts together a great collection, but usually it's like little cartoons and instructional films, some commercials, that sort of thing. Sometimes he sticks to a theme. Sometimes it's just, random and it's all the time fun and uh, also my wife is uh, on the stream quite a bit with her stuffed with character line mm -hmm. um, we've been um, promoting that as well i've created uh, some commercials for that and uh, every other stream now we've been doing um, uh, a giveaway where you can enter a, a drawing to win some of Tracy's handiwork. And we've been trying to create characters that relate somehow to whatever theme Derek has uh, planned or whatever he was showing. So we've, we've created several characters that were specific for movies like uh, back around the holidays. So when uh, you showed Santa Claus conquers the Martians, Tracy designed a Droppo figure. We've also created uh, the Iron Monster from the 
Bell the of Phantom the Creeps, Phantom yeah. Creeps uh, short. Uh, we've created a, a master from Manos, the Hands of Fate. She's um, done a whole bunch of stuff like that. And it's just been a lot of fun. And it's also been a lot of fun to create those commercials and puppeteer her little figures and do little voices for them. So it's been a lot of fun. Uh, she has already told me what you guys are planning for this weekend's stream, which is all spider themed. Uh, do you know what the giveaway is going to be, what the item will be so listeners can look forward to it? Or do we want to make them come in on Saturday to watch? I didn't ask Tracy if she was ready to give it. Oh, do you want to commit something for her now? And then just, no, just <laughs> you told him what? No, no just, <laughs> I guess you're going to have to come back on Saturday. Come check out the stream on Saturday. But there will be a stuff with character. Uh, that um, is related to spiders. I can say that much. Uh, the pre the pre show is also related to spiders. All right, Scott, this was awesome. It was thank you so much, man. Thank you, and um, thanks again for allowing me to be a part of Monster Kid Radio. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Screaming tires are squealing lemon. They're all the same to the speed merchants of the Fireball Five Hundred. <laughs> By day, the dirt track is a jungle as the kings of the speedway fight for survival. By night, it's the same when they meet their women. That's playing rough, Dave. Someone could get hurt. Only chickens get hurt. Stop crowing, baby. You're a man. American International presents Fireball 500, the story of the men who love their track fast and their women the same. Starring Frankie Avalon, wild on wheels, Annette Funicello, rough on outclass competition, and Fabian the Tiger with built-in performance with Chill Wills, Harvey Lembeck, and Julie Parrish. Filmed in Panavision in color with racing motors, screaming tires, flaming passions, and thrills and spills. Fireball 500 is one dare beyond imagination. Why, hey, hey, what are you looking for under a tombstone in broad daylight? Shh, you'll scare her away. Scare her away? Who? What? What, what? what can you scare away here in a cemetery? My ghoul friend. She's the ghost in the invisible bikini. <laughs> what are you putting me on? Herbie, I know you're broad-minded, but this is ridiculous. No, I'm serious. And you should see her since she traded her bedsheet for a bikini. Well, you must enjoy looking around for a real nothing broad. It's really just that American International is inviting everyone out to the graveyard for a blood-curdling blast with the ghost in the invisible bikini to see Tommy Kirk, Deborah Wally, Aaron Kincaid, Harvey Lembeck and Jesse White with Nancy Sinatra and guest stars Basil Rathbone, Boris Karloff and Susan Hart in the ghost in the invisible bikini in Pathé Color and Panavision. Now, you would have to get commercial. Now, you scared her away. Ooh. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. I really appreciate everybody being here, and I had a blast editing this show. So much so that, you know what? I'll tell you right now. I'm going to peel back the monster curtain. It is 1.59 a.m. Thursday, April 15th. Yes, I'm a night owl. And I'm not tired. I am on the jazz because I had so much fun putting this episode together. Recording the intro and the outro is one of the very last things that I do for the show. So waiting to the last minute to do this part, you know, it's, yeah, I don't know, maybe I should do it sooner, but I'm not exhausted the way that I normally am. I, I am so hot, piped up. I'm not tired. 
I am wide awake. In fact, if I had access to Dragon Slayer, I'd watch it as soon as I got done putting this episode out. Or, you know what? I'd go watch one of those surf movies that Scott and I talked about during that conversation, because darn it, I like me a good surf movie. Um, yeah. Anyway, a lot of things to talk about. So Scott brought it up during the conversation, the book that I've got in the works right now. There is an active Kickstarter for a role-playing game supplement called Monsters from the Public Domain. I'm taking my love of Dungeons and & Dragons and fantasy role-playing games and classic monster movies and mixing the two. I am currently writing this supplement. I'm taking public domain monster movie monsters and I'm creating stats and write-ups for them for you to use in a Dungeons & Dragons game for 5th edition. And it's been a blast. I've got some incredible artwork that's been sent in by Derek Benson who contacted me after I launched to this Kickstarter. Some of you who have been on the stream when you watched movies with us this past Saturday, and I think I might have even posted some of them uh, this past Tuesday. Maybe I did. I don't remember for sure. But I posted some of the artwork, including this awesome rendition that he did of A Killer Shrew, because that's one of, one of the monsters in the book. It's fantastic. Uh, his rendition of Nosferatu. Oh, man. I cannot wait for people to see what he's doing. Uh, if you want to head over to tinyurl.com slash publicmonsters, that'll get you to where you need to be to check out the Kickstarter campaign, take a look at the updates, because that's where some of the artwork is posted. And probably Thursday or Friday by the latest, I'll be putting another update out there. I want Derek Benson to be paid. <laughs> normally with a book like this, you want to make sure that you work your art budget into your initial campaign goal. In this case, I was planning originally to just do what I do with Photoshop and work up uh, press kit information, publicity, photos, uh, posters, and things like that, and D&Dize them a little bit. That was the original plan. But now that we've got an artist, an incredibly cool artist, man, this stuff is great, uh, reach, who had reached out to us about being involved with the book, I want to make sure that the brother gets paid. And not just because his name is Derek, like me, and he spells his name like me. Uh, he's just a great artist. And I want him to get compensated for his work. And I'm dying to ask him to do a Dungeons & Dragons version of The Creature from the Haunted Sea. But I feel really awful about asking him to do that unless he gets paid. So we're trying to hit our stretch goal of $1,850. $1,850. So that some of that money can go to him. Anyway, link in the show notes to that. Show notes can be found at monsterkidradio.net, and that's where you're going to find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio. You got links to our Facebook page, our Facebook group, our Twitter, our Discord, our Twitch. It's all right there. Plus, you can even buy a copy of the 27th Day for your very own by using the link at the show notes. It's an Amazon affiliate link. Every time you purchase something through Amazon, anything through Amazon by first clicking on one of my affiliate links, you're helping out the podcast by, well, supporting us when you buy something you would normally buy anyway. You don't have to buy a movie. Let's say you buy batteries from Amazon. Please consider using the affiliate link to get there. Just click on it, type in batteries, and you, you know how Amazon works. And I'm not saying batteries. I mean anything, especially if it's a top dollar item please consider using our affiliate link because it helps us out. Uh, and the reason I'm stressing things like this, and, and I don't want to come across as, 
one of those podcasters or one of those content creators, but I want to be straight up and I want to be honest with everybody here. And I mentioned this a little bit on Tuesday already. I want to mention it here now. So if you've been listening to the show for the past several months or hanging out with us on the stream or chatting with me on Facebook privately, you know that Brenda and I are going through a divorce. Um, it's still happening. I know it's been kind of ongoing pandemic made things really slow and Brenda and I are still friends. You know, we're still friendly. Yeah. It still kind of sucks and I still have mo down moments, but Brenda and I are still friends. We were talking the other day and I really need to do something about moving on, uh, in terms of moving out of where I'm living now. Uh, I got to find somewhere else to live and I don't have a quote unquote real job. I have money coming in from Patreon, which is amazing. I've got money coming in from Twitch and the donations for the giveaways that happen on Twitch. I have some successful Kickstarter campaigns, one that's already funded. And then this other one that's, you know, still going for another 10 days. I've got income coming in, but it's not going to be enough to support me moving into my own place, especially since prices around here in the Portland area are pretty high and I'm not really interested in leaving the Portland area. I'm not that desperate yet. So to that end, I'm looking for work, specifically remote work, work that I can do from home because Brenda and I are sharing the car. She lives in a completely different part of town than I do on the other side of the river. So I wouldn't have a way to get to my job if I had to drive somewhere on a regular basis outside of using public transportation. And I don't want to do that while we're still dealing with the pandemic. So yeah, I'm looking for remote work. I've applied for several jobs. If something happens where I start working somewhere that conflicts with the things that I do on Monster Kid Radio, I just want to give everybody kind of a heads up now. Uh, in, in order of, I guess, priority, if I had to give something up, Tuesday's science fiction stream would be the first thing to go. Then the movie stream on Saturday. Finally, the podcast. And I don't think it would ever get to that point with the podcast. I was working a full-time job when I launched the podcast. I don't see that going anywhere. But in terms of doing any kind of work on a Tuesday or Saturday, I don't think I could maintain a movie stream plus do a remote job from home uh, on any kind of schedule. So I just kind of want to let people know what's happening there. Again, I don't want to see it happen. It's not my intention. I just, I, I can't imagine not having these streams in my life. It means a lot to me to do those and, you know, provide that for my friends, you know, for the community that you guys and gals have kind of built around me. Again, this is not me doing some sort of passive-aggressive, hey, wouldn't you like to be a patron or give me a donation or anything like that? It's not about that. I just want to be honest about what could happen in the future. Because of some of these changes that may or may not happen, or even whether or not they happen or not, whatever, if there's anybody out there who would be interested in helping me run some of these things, I could really use a hand. There's not a lot of activity on the Facebook page, but I think I probably get one or two member requests a week for the Monster Kid Radio Facebook group. It's a public group, but to get in, you've got to answer a couple of questions. 
And I've heard rumors that Facebook may be changing how they're doing their groups and that anybody can join whatever. I don't know if that's going to happen or not, but I'd love to get another moderator or two in the Facebook group. If that sounds like something you'd be interested in doing, drop me a line at monsterkidradio at gmail.com and we'll talk about it. Also, I already have one moderator that helps me out on the streaming side of things. There may be times when I set the stream and I have to walk away for a little while because I might be doing something else like a job thing. I could use some help there as well, especially since on Tuesday, April 20th, we're running a 24-hour stream. It's not science fiction, though. I mean, maybe the government wanted it to be science fiction back in the day when they first released the movie Reefer Madness, but that's what we're showing. On April 20th, on 420, I'm putting Reefer Madness on a 24-hour loop at twitch.tv slash monsterkidradio. Why? Because I think it's funny. Um, <laughs> uh, that said, I have been running Reefer Madness through a couple of different programs that I have here to try to enhance the image a little bit, to make it look sharper than it has ever looked before on home video or on home media. So if nothing else, it'll look better than it ever has. <laughs> uh, the movie runs just over an hour long, which means we're probably going to get like 22 or 23 plays out of the thing. Uh, I am not creating a huge 22-hour-long video file. I'm just going to create a file and hit loop and hit play and call it good. But I'm not going to be able to maintain or watch the chat room the entire time that it's running. So I could use a hand, <laughs> I think, if there's anybody that feels like they would like to take on that extra responsibility. Um, because, again, I want to make sure that... Uh, you know, it's still a safe place and fun place to hang out in. I'll probably set some auto moderation filters up to more so than normal, but yeah, drop me a, a line again, monsterkidradio at gmail.com. Um, Reefer Madness is one of these films that the government put together and released. It was uh, kind of a beware the dangers of marijuana movies. And, you know, I know their heart was in the right place and, this isn't a politics podcast. I'm not going to talk about legalizing marijuana or what I really think about, you know, how things are treated, whatever. It's not about that. I just think it's hilarious that I'm going to run. I'm, I'm amusing myself. I'm running Reefer Madness on 420. Anyway, that's what's happening on Tuesday. <laughs> Uh, we talked a little bit about it with Scott on Saturday. It's Spider Saturday. We're going to be showing nothing but spider-themed and spider-referencing movies, I guess, because movies like Web of the Spider don't really have, like, a killer spider in it or whatever, but, you know, it's in the title, so whatever. Uh, we're going to be showing Horrors of Spider Highland, uh, The Giant Spider from Christopher R. Mim, uh, an independent short film uh, from Oregon from a few years ago called Adam Age Spider. Uh, we're going to be showing, uh, what was the other one? Like, is this Venom of the Spider? Is that what it was called? Let me double check. The Legend of Spider Forest. That's what we're showing. We're also going to be showing an episode of Tales of Tomorrow called The Spider's Web. So that's what we're doing this Saturday. Uh, if you want to see some spider goodness, you know where you want to be on Saturday the 17th. It's the Monster Kid Radio Twitch channel. Oh, hey. Did you know we have a Reddit now, too? Monster Kid Radio's on Reddit. Just look up Monster Kid Radio. I'll put a link in the show notes to that as well. Not a lot of conversation happening there either because it is brand new. But, uh, yeah, if you're a Reddit user, 
new place for you to talk about Monster Kid Radio. I'm trying to find a way for people to talk about MKR and classic monster movies anywhere they go on the web. So that's what that's all about. Next week on the show, let's talk about what's coming up. I have three recordings happening over the next three days. And I'm not sure which one I'm going to run next week, but I think... It's going to be an episode with me and Ryan Langell, whose last name I probably butchered. And when I have him on the show, I'm going to ask him to pronounce it for me so that I can always remember. At least maybe I can get the monster in the machine to remember it for me. But he's going to be joining the show. Who is he? He is a stop motion artist. He does some incredible work. Most recently, you can see his pterodactyls and cowgirls versus pterodactyls. He's going to be joining the show and he and I are going to be talking about our top three favorite stop motion monster movies, not by Ray Harryhausen. I know, blasphemy, right? Harryhausen is the man, but there's also some really good work out there from, you know, other people than Ray. I know, I know, crazy, right? Anyway, Ryan and I are going to talk about that next week on the show, more than likely. And then the week after that, I, I don't know yet. I don't want to commit. But I have some more recordings coming up. You know what? I feel like I'm just kind of rambling now, so why don't we go ahead and bring this to a close. Monsters in the Machine, I know I've already mentioned the email address. Why don't you tell the listeners the email address and our phone number for good measure. Let the people know how they can get a hold of us. You can call and leave a voicemail for Monster Kid Radio at 503-810-5MKR. That's 503-810-5657. Or you can send an email to the podcast. MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com is the email address. That's MonsterKidRadio at gmail.com. Until next week, Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, it does not apply to the song Hipster on a beach that is copyright 2019 moms i'd like to surf which you can find at moms i'd like to surf.bandcamp.com follow the link in the show notes buy their album and let them know that you heard about them here on monster kid radio my name is derek m cook i'll talk to you next week ciao